Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Looking at the architecture, you're on a stage, Katie. I tell you what, I was thinking. I was thinking, why didn't they put another floor in like they used to? We've got got Phil. He'll tell you the history of the location. But yeah, no, it's uh, it's so good to see so many of you here. First Blackfriars talks today. Oh my goodness, Gloucester History Festival is going from strength to strength, and I am so excited. It feels like it's just going to keep gathering momentum and get better and better. And I'm so grateful that lovely, lovely, kind people that I have reached out to have said yes to come and give talks. Tony said yes. I did pester him rather a lot, but he did, he did eventually, eventually say yes. Um, so we are very, very lucky with our festival that, that actually it is for Gloucester. It is invested by the people of Gloucester and we want it to enrich Gloucester, to make Gloucester strong and proud of itself as a city. And as a result, I'm very, very delighted that um, Barnwood Construction have sponsored this event. It's their first time sponsoring very important company, really important role to play in Gloucester. You're not supposed to have that on a piece of paper, you know. That it's... <laughs> Show me up already. We've only just started. I thought I had it in my head, but I obviously didn't. You always panic when when you come to the person who's given the money. I'd just like to thank... (laughs) Somewhere around here. Um, Anyway, we're going to take our seats and you're going to listen to us chat. We've already blown the microphones for the sound guys with our booming voices and our mega laughter. So be prepared for a fun evening. Uh, But can I just ask you all to join with me in thanking the amazing Tony Robinson for joining us. Start as you mean to go on. I also wanted to add that this is my, my most maidenly dress that I own because I'm in the presence of a knight of the realm. So he is my knight this evening, but also because I have to say my first encounter with Tony and your work was Maid Marian and his merry men. (laughs) So I was sort of weaned on your programmes, really. Um, Blackadder's been a huge part of everybody's lives. And Time Team was actually probably one of the reasons I'm sat here today doing the job I do, because I watched you week after week after week, got inspired, got excited by archaeology and the past, and you brought it all to life. Um, what, how did you end up being so immersed in history? It wasn't through academic study, was it? It was more of a passion. No, no, developed. it certainly wasn't through uh, academic study. Um, the sum total of my academic achievements is four O-levels. Yeah. Um, thank you very much. <laughs> And those were hard by the sound of it. I'm the only person I know who has more honorary degrees than (laughs) O-levels. That's amazing. Um, From the very first moments that I remember, my dad was talking to me about his life. Uh, My dad was a working-class boy from Hackney. My mum was from Hackney, too. And uh, he, he was very, very bright. But like younger sons in working-class families in the East End at that time, even though he won a place to London University, he couldn't go. They couldn't afford to let him go. So he got a very junior job in the London County Council, which later became the GLC. 
And it was constructed in that pyramidical way, like all organisations were in those days. And he was very much the other ranks. But he stayed at home uh, every evening, working in this little job that he'd got, studying for his uh, LCC exams. And here my mum seldom went out. She would come around and knit while my dad was studying. And eventually he passed his exams and he became, as it were, a junior officer in the LCC, which gave him enough money uh, to put to put down the money for a mortgage to buy a semi-detached house in South Woodford, which was the the dream behind every (laughs) white working-class family in the uh, East End at that time. And they had to pay £950 for that house. And everyone said, you're crazy, you'll never get your money back. Uh, And they lived in their semi-detached house for about three months and then war was declared. And uh, they both joined the RAF, my mum joined the RAF, um, and my dad went up to East Scotland and he was just a corporal fitter patching up hurricanes and spitfires and my mum was a clerk in Reading Although she seems to me to have spent virtually all of the war fighting Hitler by doing amateur dramatics. (laughs) (laughs) It's sounding very familiar from my childhood, I have to say. (laughs) And, um, uh, but my dad, it was my dad was passionate about hurricanes and spitfires and his dream was that he could become a sergeant pilot. But he became more and more alienated from the officer corps, all these young public school boys, you know, 18, 19 years old, until eventually, and this is how the movie goes in my mind. Um, (laughs) The movie of your life. The movie of my life, yeah. And and action. Um, My dad's over there patching up this little hurricane, and uh, uh, it would have been a spit, it would have been a spit. And and coming towards him, as it were, in slow motion, is squadron leader Hamilton. Uh, and he's got on, you know, the, 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 the white silk scarf, the flowing hair, the old, the, the leather jacket with the, the wool around well, the neck. Well, he's isn't he? He is, yeah. <laughs> he's my dad. He comes towards him like this, and he gets up to my dad, and my dad says, because um, my dad was like, he was even shorter than me, my dad said, uh, uh, Morning, sir, I, I've, I've patched up the old kite for you, sir. Uh, shall give you a good ride. Uh, great luck today, sir. And squadron leader Hamilton looked at him and said, fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) After which my dad was not interested in being involved in piloting or anything like that. And so instead, he became... uh, he became a boogie pianist with the Canadian Forces dance band. From one extreme to the yeah, other. Yeah, there, there, were, there were loads of Canadians in, in East Scotland throughout the war. And uh, you know, obviously they didn't have their own naffy, but like uh, every other army and air force, they injected a lot of money into keeping the men's morale up. So and my dad vaguely knew, knew how to play the piano and they didn't have a boogie pianist. <laughs> Uh, and it, it, at the beginning of the war, there are photos of my dad. He's, he's like right on the end of the line on the stage. You can hardly see him. <laughs> his nose and his fingers. <laughs> By the end of the war, when he'd become a really good boogie pianist, he was really like a sort of fat swallow kind of guy. He was in the middle giving it all this stuff. So at the end of the war, he could have gone to Canada as a professional oh, really? pianist. But, he, um, but because they bought that semi... Um, and they just invested in that dream of, of, of that respectable Essex future when, when, prior to the war, that they went back there. But the whole point of what I've just said is that throughout my early years, my dad just told me stories mm. of his life in the war, going round all these village halls, playing boogie piano. Wow. And if any of you have got any relatives who are in their late 60s or early 70s who look like me <laughs> <laughs> and come from Scotland... <laughs> and are really good at the piano. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and so, um, yeah, so, so like from the very beginning, and I bet it's the same with your mum and dad too, from the very beginning, because of all these stories just sparking off my mum and my dad all the time, I was aware, and I think it's such a precious kid for a thing to to be aware of, I was aware that mine was not the only time there had ever been. Exactly. There had been 
other nows when my mum and dad were young and had had wonderful adventures. Mm. And by, um, by projection, that must have meant that their mum and dad did and their mum and dad and their mum and dad, mm. right back into the very fast. So that all these people that you heard about in all these old-fashioned stories with long sleeves and pointy hats... and but, <laughs> Exactly. They were, all, th- th- they were all part of, of who I am now. Yeah. And indeed, who I am now would be uh, kind of recognised in the future. It would, be, it would be the past in, in the future. But it never... I didn't know... I, it sounds ludicrously yeah. naive. I didn't know it was called history. Yeah. And I can remember when I was about 10, anyone here who is my age uh, will remember a, a radio series called How Things Began. And um, I, I used to listen to how things began. When I was about 10, um, they said, well, I want you to, to listen to today's programme and then write it down and you can get marks. And I thought, <laughs> and, and they said, and it's called history. <laughs> and I thought, they give marks for that? Why would, <laughs> everybody would want to know all that stuff. I yeah. mean, to me, as to you, it was just, it was as intuitive as breathing and walking and singing and just every other part of my natural life. And I think, well, you know, you and I are so lucky that that is so imbued in us. And, when... and it happens to some and it doesn't happen to other, others. And that's something that I, 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 that's why I think we both do what we do. I mean, I talked to you before about this, but one of the things that we often get called is public historians. And it's a difficult term, isn't it? Because it sort of reduces a lot of, of, the, of, the, of all the extraneous work that we do. But actually, it is so important, isn't it? If you can get the German at any age, I mean, it's great if you can get it into children, but if you can get it in at any age, it sets you up for a life of appreciating that sort of telescopic view of history, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, but as you say, we're in a way we're cursed. Uh, the word public and historian, they are both really old fashioned words, aren't mm. they? You say public historian to most eight or nine-year-olds, it would be, whoa! <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's the same with archaeology. A subject that nobody can even spell. I... Ark and Ant. I love it when it's archaeology uh, uh, and anthropology uh, uh, and you can't uh, even get to the end of the line. Now, Ark and Ant ought to be the heroes of a, of a comic strip. Yeah, or the presenters of uh, oh, some like, TV <laughs> show, Ark and Ant. Drying out in <laughs> rehab. Um, uh, <laughs> 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 Suddenly the audience sinks. <laughs> 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 but you know, but they're, but, they're, but they're hugely important subjects, and this was something that affected my disc because I'm not a historian. It affected us. We're losing the A levels. Archaeology, another gone. one, it's gone. gone. Yeah. It's gone. And, and do you know what's bonkers to me about the fact that we've lost A level archaeology? Nobody knows what skills are going to be required in. 20 years' time. Probably we don't know what skills are going to be required Mm. in 10 or even 5. So actually, what we need is young people who are trained to be light on their feet, Mm. to be able to analyse, to be able to get out there into, as it were, the field, both literally and metaphorically. All those skills that you get from a subject like archaeology actually aren't are likely not to be nearly as important as, let us say, the retention of information, Mm. which we can do technologically. Mm -hmm. And um, I've had a series of spats with a... um, a Minister of State, an ex-Minister of State for Education. But just one? <laughs> just one. Like, I, I think there have been, but this particular one. This one, this particular spat. Okay. I won't tell you his name. It, 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 it was Michael Gove, obviously. <laughs> um, but I, I think the, the, the problem is, I, I genuinely believe that, as it were, his heart is in the right place, that yeah. he, wants a, he wants rigour in the various disciplines. But I just don't think he gets what is required for the preparation of young people in, <laughs> in the future. I mean, yep. I cannot just to tell her to leap forward. Sorry, I haven't let you get a word in yet. Just, Your wife which told is me I wouldn't. Where's Lou? She said, you won't get one word in tonight, and it's happening, isn't it? No, go on. No, just, uh, it's just a Blackadder and Michael Gove story. So, <laughs> uh, I've got a book coming out. Of, I can't even remember what it was anymore, and it coincided with the time when uh, uh, Michael Gove was on telev- television a lot. So we were kind of both there, and he said... Live, that he thought that Blackadder 
and Oh What a Lovely War shouldn't be taught as part of a school's agenda about the First World War because they trivialised the First World War, uh, because they made fun of the officer class, which was totally unfair, etc., etc., etc. My arguments about this were as follows. First of all, I don't think that humour is the opposite of serious. I think trivial is the opposite of serious, but I think that that being funny is one of the greatest ways of remembering stuff. Oh, my goodness, yeah. And I bet you Michael Gove can remember just about everything out of 1066 and all that, for instance. Well, it's horrible histories for the generation coming through. It's so good. I sometimes, before a lecture, if I need to brush up, pop a horrible history on it goes straight in yeah. you're singing the song you're remembering the dates and the names it's the oh, it's absolutely essential absolutely yeah and as far as the officer class is concerned he just as, as far as i think he actually got it completely wrong yeah the fact is that from um after the english civil war the 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 landed class were so terrified of the idea of a people's army that they said right from now on officers must have, as it were, a vested interest in the land of the country. They must be from the landowning class. Mm. And, and that continued right through to the, the mid-1870s, and that culture was still there, of course, at the beginning of the First World War. Mm. So, uh, there, as far as I understand, there were many downsides to, to the decision to, uh, uh, that they made after the, the English Civil War. Um, but one of those was, of course, that it meant that the whole army was actually very class bedeviled and there was new, no new analysis coming in yeah, yeah. and I find it fascinating that there was a real kick up the bum for the army in uh, 1917 when the Australian officers came through yes, because yeah. they came from an entirely different culture so I think the idea of taking the mick out of Haig and, and, and the other senior officers is absolutely quite justified. The, the third Third thing, and, and, and again, I know you'll agree with me absolutely about this, is that <laughs> if I could, if I could say something, I probably would. Yeah, yeah I'd probably agree that's with not, you. Loads. Yeah, but that's not important right now. <laughs> <laughs> now, what I was going to, uh, what I was going to say was, yeah. was that um, when teachers put Blackadder into the the classroom. It's a teaching aid. Exactly. They don't... The kids don't believe that the First World War was like Blackadder any more than if you teach uh, Wilfred Owen. They immediately think the whole First World War rhymed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And and so it seemed to me to be an enormous insult to to, to teachers. Sorry, would you like to ask Well, no, I was going to say, because we've been talking... I mean, this chimes completely with what we were saying earlier about fiction, doesn't it? Because we were talking about historical fiction and fantasy and actually that, that strange bridge between worlds that, that is so enchanting. We've been talking about Game of Thrones, we've been talking about American gods, but there is this idea, isn't there, that, that if it's not the dusty history books with the absolute accurate facts, then it's not giving you histo- history. Come on, they're too much. They're too much, Joe Rogan. I'm fucking up. I'm checking. The edges of that, hasn't it? Yeah, and, well, two things. First of all, the other thing that we were talking about was the fact that you have just finished your first fiction book about the Vikings. Well, now everyone knows. <laughs> Four, <laughs> 10 to 14-year-olds. Yeah, this is, this is kind of cutting-edge news, so, yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, but the other thing about history is there is this notion that there is such an idea as the objective truth. Exactly. And that you can, you can ingest the objective truth by reading the good book on that particular period or that particular character. And yet the reality is, you know, if anything has happened in a room and there were five people in that room... Everyone's account. Exactly. Everyone. Within, within 24 hours, it's huge. Well, there's a, there's a curve, isn't there? Within a quarter of an hour, uh, everyone's truth will be only 75% the, the same. Within, I think, about a day, it's 50%. Yeah. Within two days, it's 75% different. Yeah. Um, so, and I think the kind of playfulness, some might say the irreverence, and I don't 
I won't argue against that word. The, the playfulness that we have about history is in the main to do with the fact that unless you play with history, you don't do it justice. But you don't unpack it. And I think that that's the really important thing about the humanities. You, you were really concerned about the loss of archaeology as an A-level. I was deeply concerned about the loss of art history as an A-level. And, and the idea that you cut off at its root the, the people who are going to go forward and be the, the, the real kernels of your, your academic world going forward... I, it's just un, it's horrible and scary and I think what the humanities do it is that idea of understanding humanity and it's many layers and I've said this to my students I can wake up at eight in the morning and go to bed at, at let's say 10 o'clock not true but let's say <laughs> let's say 2am and um, and I'll be a different person by the end of that day through the experiences that have happened to me and the various mediums that we use to record those changes in our feelings and experiences as humans are things like poetry literature art and the objects we wear the things that archaeology finds in the ground they're, they're, the, they are what it is to be a confusing human being and if you try to put objectivity and truth onto that it strips it of that, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think we, virtually all of us, regardless of our, our own personal politics, have what they call a Whig view of history, don't we? <laughs> that, which is essentially that, uh, uh, that it gets better all the time, provided, you know, the, our, our leaders work hard and are honourable, things gradually get better, and our perceptions get broader and our understanding mm. gets broader. I've just, out of curiosity, um, over the last few weeks been revisiting the history of Shakespeare, the, uh, the history of Bacon, and particularly of Erasmus, oh. who is such a gigantic figure. Uh, oh, we, in, don't, in we the... don't do enough with him, do we? we Nobody knows no. about Erasmus. But, but you see, all the stuff that you've been saying, which, mm. is, which you know, we tend to think of is, is like sort of uh, late 20th, early 21st century perception of the complexity of human beings, the complexity of, of reality. They knew all that stuff in spades. They did. And they were teaching that to 14, 15-year-olds, and they were getting 14 and 15-year-olds to, as it were, um, parody all this, the, 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 these... Uh, metaphysical uh, philosophies yeah. and they were doing plays that's the other thing isn't it well this is something I was going to ask you about actually Teddy because I mean we've kind of got in two different directions because on the one hand I want to explore this, this sort of impact of the humanities and, and the thing that drives me absolutely balmy which is why I work with a lot of scientists with the podcasts and things that I do I, I think this arbitrary division in the disciplines is nonsense. And if you go back to what we call dark ages, as you say, the medieval period, they were holistic. They saw connections between human bodies and ideas and emotions. And they didn't split them up and say, right, for the next two hours, you're going to an English class. Then you're going down the corridor to do biology and they're two separate worlds. Um, but the thing I was going to really ask you about is acting, because obviously it was right in there with you at the beginning. And was it something that evolved or did you just know that you had to express yourself through acting and, and immerse yourself in the world of acting? I don't know because I can't remember is the smart-ass answer oh, to that. Yeah. But it's but helpful. It's, yeah. um, but because my dad loved the piano we had this tiny little semi and my dad bought a baby grand piano oh God. And, he, <laughs> and he put it in the front room which my, I always thought my mum loved that but this is an awful thing to say two weeks after he died she flogged the piano no! she got it out the front room yeah but it was like it was like piano that's the room then like the rest of sofa <laughs> telly that was that, that was the posh room that was the the room we had to invite people in. so like like piano rhythm yeah the telly was terribly important to us, really, really, really important to us. Um, acting, play for today, Zed cars, all that kind of stuff. Enorm so that room yeah. it was so imbued with the stuff that I am now. Uh, and the other thing is dialectic, which again is you know, something that is so important to us and is really not taught now. And what, all I mean by that, from my point of view, <laughs> is this. My dad loved arguing with me. <laughs> And he used to play at arguing with me. So, like, when I was, like, 11 or 12, uh, and when I got my first band, The Bomb Badge, um, he'd, yeah. say, he'd say, um, 
uh, independent, an independent nuclear deterrent is absolutely rubbish, isn't it, Tony? Because yeah. uh, it was, it's, it's just a gesture. The other countries wouldn't do it, and then you would be completely exposed. And anyway, we need to have nuclear weapons. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, and I would argue against him desperately with, with every little part of my 12 or 13-year-old <laughs> brain. The next day I would come in, and he'd say... That independent uh, nuclear, uh, uh, nuclear summit, that's a good idea, good isn't idea. it? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I would repeat what he'd said the previous night. No, it's not that, because... <laughs> da, 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 da. And he said, ah, yes, it is, because... And then he would go down that line. So constantly, in this rather, you know, um, Oedipal intellectual struggle, it was just fun. It was fun all the time. You know, and it meant that by the time I was 15 or 16, I would constantly do what I'm doing now, which is not any, let anyone... No, I want to have a say, exactly, which is why I'm really struggling, because I grew up in the same household yeah. so I want to announce that my parents are here tonight first time they've come to see me talk publicly and what you've just described is pretty much every day of my life from about the age of well indefinitely yeah. but it is it's that argument and it will end in tears there will be discussions of religion politics uh, all the all the big ones and and you just take a stance and then you sit with your stance you don't even know if you necessarily believe it but you doggedly argue with the yeah, person yeah, yeah. opposite you until you've got your own way but, so, it, but in a way you're right and what it is it's that it's that old rhetorical training that goes right back to Greek, Greek times where you know you learn the power of rhetoric and you learn the power of debate and and it is totally formative isn't yeah, it yeah yeah ethics yeah. I, mean, I still think in a, in a funny sort of way in the 50s we were still uh, we still had ethical conversations and there were all those things like the brains trust and stuff mm. that, were, that, that, uh, that that was on, on, on the telly um Kids today, I mean, I, I, kids are wonderful and I absolutely adore them, but they don't have that same ethical toolbox, not an ease of, of, of ethics, I don't think. That, I think that, it depends on environment, doesn't it? Because, I mean, I'd like to think that I try and challenge my kids to be brought up in a similar way with that sort of environment. But I think that school doesn't help because there isn't the opportunity... I mean, I remember getting, at, you know, ripped to shreds by teachers who just take the piss out of me <laughs> for random reasons. And, and that, that's... There's so many boundaries now that actually you don't get riled up, you don't get engaged, but at the same time you're not really... You know, you don't get to invest in an argument and a discussion necessarily right. in the yeah. same way. Um, so I just, just to sort of to tie up that uh, the, the question that you asked me. Uh, admittedly, this will be quite a long way. So I'm twelve. Um, <laughs> I'm twelve or thirteen. My um, my mum reads in the Daily Express that they need some kids to be in a show uh-huh. in London's West End. She says to me, "Would you like to uh, have an interview for that show?" and as I say, all of my time had been about singing and dancing, and I was quite, in many ways, quite confident, and yeah. confident with adults and, and, and all that. So I said, yeah, I'd l- like to do that. Um, so I went for this audition, and it was at the Wimbledon Theatre, which was an enormous old barn of a theatre, two or 3,000 people, and it was, there were 1,000 kids there. No. Or, uh, yeah, 1,000 kids. Uh, and they were all, like, fighting and uh, running around the dress circle and clambering up on the stage. And gradually they were auditioned till by lunchtime 500 had been sent away and by tea time there was only 100 left. It, it, it was the X Factor. It was the X oh Factor Oh my gosh. And then the, um, those of us who were still there, we had to come back the next week and the next week. I think I, th- think I had six auditions. Gosh. By the end of it, uh, there were 14 of us left lined up across the stage <gasps> like in the chorus line, you know. And uh, we were told that we could be in this musical play which was going to be based uh, on Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist and uh, 12 of the boys, uh, including myself, would be part of the Artful Dodgers gang mm-hmm. and then one would be the Artful Dodger and uh, the other would be uh, Oliver Twist. And we re- oh, and they said, oh, uh, and by the way, you'll have to have two and a half months off school. Oh. Result! Oh. So we did the rehearsals, and then it came to the first night, and it was, you obviously all aware by now, it was the first, the very first night of Oliver. And it was this massive success. And historically and culturally, you can see mm. why. There were so many musicals in the West End at, at the time, all of whom, of which you starred in holding a hairbrush, I'm sure, <laughs> looking into the mirror. Uh, oh, I, I trod the boards, Tony, I trod the boards. <laughs> Oak, 
Oklahoma, Carousel, West Side yeah. Story, Seven Brides for Seven Absolutely. Brothers. Absolutely. You know, fantastic shows, but all American. Yeah. In the West End, whereas the, the, the drama by that time was John Osborne's Look Back in Anger, which of oh, course God, turned yes. everything upside down. Then Harold Pinter, Arnold Wesker, Bernard Copps completely transformed the serious theatre, but not the musicals. But then Oliver comes along, which is all about 19th century Cockney little boys. Go and city mate, yeah. And um, it became this huge success. Uh, but they were, the, the management was so overwhelmed by the success of it, they f- forgot to do the basic things, like getting in understudies. And after about two weeks, one Tuesday afternoon, the boy was playing the Artful Dodger, forgot that it was a matinee and bunked off school. Uh, and nobody could find him. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and so Tuesday afternoon, matinee day, we're all there, quarter of an hour to go, the stage manager is tearing his hair out. He, he comes up to me and says, Tony... Do you know the part of the Artful Dodger? And I said yes. I mean, all us kids did. We were, we were thirteen. Our minds were unsullied by drink and drugs, <laughs> or at least <laughs> <laughs> semi-unsullied. Yeah. Uh, and um, and so I went on as the uh, as the Artful Dodger. And you remember? Do you re- remember the song? Consider yourself. Yeah. I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. It was like it was like it was like consider yourself <laughs> la la <laughs> But amazingly the audience the audience oh, no. appeared to to warm to my interpretation of the artful dodger as a young boy tragically struck down by juvenile dementia. Yes. And uh, so I was given the permanent part of the as the understudy to the artful dodger. Um, so I had this really bizarre, 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 bizarre life from 13 to about 16, where half the time I was a co-ed grammar school in Wanstead, and uh, the rest of the time I was doing bit parts in movies and television and, and theatre. But it all... This is really weird, isn't it? It all seemed so natural yeah. to me. Having been so imbued with this kind of performance thing, it's like now. Mm. But, you know, oh, somebody said to me earlier, don't... You get nervous before. I know. I know. No, it's no, this you is do, what we do. It this is, is very, very world. odd, isn't it? It's yeah. organic. I, I was having this conversation recently because somebody, I was doing a big talk and somebody said, Don't you get nervous <laughs> in this sort of environment? And the reality is no. And because the first time I ever did it, I was so sick with nerves. And yet you do it again and again and again and again. And all the nerves erode after time. And I I, I liken it to sort of... I worked for my uncle and I used to stuff envelopes for his company. And the first week I did it, I was useless. I did about ten in a day. And by the time I'd be doing it for four weeks, I was like... Super fast. And and it is that thing of acclimatising yourself to it. But also... I think there's the attention-seeking bit, isn't there? Not in me. No, no. you haven't got an attention-seeking thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, uh, Lawrence, Lawrence Olivia says that you can reduce every great performance by an adult actor <laughs> to that actor when they were four years old, standing on the dining room table, dropping their trousers or lifting up their skirt and saying, "Look, mummy, no knickers." <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is it. <laughs> So, you, yeah, so I'm sure that comes through too. But also, I suppose the, the idea that... Because um, I'm really intrigued about how, obviously, you did stage, and stage is gruelling. Stage is... It, it looks gorgeous. When you're sat in the audience and you're watching a couple of hours' worth of a show, it's glamour, it's glitz, it's noise, it's song. But it's tiring as hell, isn't it? And your yeah. body clock goes out of sequence, and you don't know... You, you know to be able to shift between that and school, that must have been really, really hard. Well, I loved it because I hated school. I hated school with a vengeance. <laughs> I was one of those kids who, and I don't know why, why this is, it was like um, there were all these things that I wanted to do and be, and they were all over there, mm. and I was over here, and between me there was schoolwork, oh, no. which was like the Berlin Wall, patrolled oh, no. at the top by... You're talking to the biggest geek in the world. I used to run into school in the morning going, yeah, books! <laughs> You're well, like, see, whereas I bumped off school, sneaked into the library, oh. hid behind the bookshelves and went, yay, books, and I don't have to go to school. Fair enough, so fair enough. Because I, I, I suspect then that... that 
our educations are very different, but quite complementary. Yes. In that yours will have been uh, much more disciplined because you had a template, mm. whereas mine was so kind of randomly autodidactic. I would read a book. I can, I, you know, I can remember when, when I was 14, reading like the whole of Graham Greene. Yeah. Read Brighton book, uh, Rock and then read the whole of Graham Read the whole of Robert Graves and found out fairly soon that at the back of those books there were the lists of those books that those writers had liked exactly. that caused them to write their book. So I think, well, if they like them, then I'll write them too. So I would then follow, what do they call it? That, well, that I call meme, it follow the trope. footnote because it's even yeah. worse when you're an academic. You read like one page of an article and suddenly you've gone off and looked up eight other works in the course of one page because you followed the footnote. Yeah. But yeah, but you're following the reference points aren't you and by doing that you get what you talked about earlier you get that kind of subtle view you get the notion that that i don't know that uh, an awful lot of the things that queen elizabeth was supposed to have said actually she never yeah. said at all they were written a hundred years after she died or were written by her publicist yes uh, and then somebody else says no that is not true that is a blah, 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 and then you're off on a well we're on to a fake news trail aren't yeah, we yeah, and yeah. actually it and it is it's very scary i mean we i was talking to mark gatis last year in this setup on the beginning of the festival and he gave a re, he, he said some really prophetic stuff about the that the need to qualify information they need to really work out whether it is true or not. And, the, and the, the process you're describing there, that idea of the curious mind, the curious mind that will go off, research, find things out for themselves. And, you know, you can be in an academic square and sort of go jump through the hoops and do it correctly. Or you can have the curious mind and, and actually seek it out through whichever means you can. And I think that you, you must have found this, particularly working on Time Team, when you're encountering a lot of academics, a lot of experts. Often the twain don't meet. <laughs> Except that the great thing about archaeology is that it is about narratives. Mm. It is about the fact that you discover two pieces of information, three pieces of information. And out of those three pieces of information, you weave... Um, you can't... When I'm saying something profound, you don't point at your watch and draw it on your wrist. <laughs> <laughs> I have no watch, and yours is useless. We've established your watch. I is can't terrible. tell the time. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. The thing, yeah, the thing about you know, it's, it's really again what we were talking about earlier. Um, you can't um, with archaeology. You get these three bits of information, and you create a narrative about them. You need the narrative because you want to carry something intellectually because you need to challenge it. It is. It's for. It, it's just like CSI. It's a forensic. <laughs> yes, it is. It's yes. a forensic discipline, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. You get those three pieces of information. You create a narrative, which helps you look for something else. You find the fourth. It's not what you were expecting. You kick that narrative yeah. completely out of the window and you put the fourth one in and you start again. Yes. And, and we take the Mickey out of archaeologists for that. But it's what. It's what these people called intellectuals have been doing, as you said, since ancient Greek times. It's what we do. It's, it's how, It is yeah. how we understand stuff. But it's also, it's that idea as well, isn't it? Because I, I love archaeology as a discipline. It's such an interesting discipline because on the one hand, you're absolutely right. It's human narratives. It's lives. It's people's lives in the grounds yeah, that you're uncovering. Yeah. And they are all stories. But at the same time, the scientific precision that is required, to me, makes it one of those beautiful disciplines where those worlds really come together. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yesterday morning, I was, I was reading about, uh, about Marlowe's education. Ooh. And he went to King's School in Canterbury, which is like kind of still there, which is weird. I actually filmed a film. I had a bit part in a film with Judy Garland once, where I filmed yeah. there. That's a kind of weird piece of synchronicity. Anyway, the, 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 um, and I was just, it was about, this, about plays, really, that they would have to do examinations like we do uh, examinations. But... It, even the, the, the masters encourage them to do plays because the great thing about plays is that the characters who are standing up there, if a character is on stage and he is saying something, everybody is kind of getting a different view of, what, uh, of who that person is and what they're saying and, and what their role is in that particular piece of history. So you get all that kind of subtlety, which you just don't bloody get in Michael Gove's contemporary vision which is now being carried on into education now yeah. you know uh, good exams are falling week by week and month mm-hmm. by month mm-hmm. because there isn't that kind of subtlety of education is no longer but, required but the power of that as well i mean if you do think about someone like richard iii the idea that that you can have a play that creates a character so completely and then you add the dimension of archaeology and you create this sort of mystique around a character. That is so electric, that is so real. But there's no one route to go at that, is there? No, I mean, you can no. sit through the play and just think, oh, what a bastard, you know. But actually, it, no, I mean, I think that's why, that is why I, I have totally been drawn to the humanities. And that's why I was actually asking about acting, because I think, in a funny way, your, your immersion in the theatre and in plays was part of that, that, that empathy that took you on to history, I guess. Or am I just jumping? Here? No. I, I, well, I don't think it took me on to history, because I think the, the history thing was always there. Um, nor do I really understand why, as a freelance, mm. so much of my stuff has had history That's through what I'm trying it, to get like to, Tony. Come because on. I don't know. <laughs> it, is, it is an absolute total mystery to, to me. All I can tell you is that performance and history were kind of always there in me and, and have become really have become a kind of a, a passion yeah. for me. But just leaping back to that Richard III thing, I was so upset when Channel 4 didn't mm. ask me to front that Richard yeah. III programme. Uh, I, knew... I, was, I, was, I was in a car park when I heard about the discovery <laughs> in a car park filming, and I felt, even I felt the same, and you're, you're Tony Robinson, and I'm there going, damn, I wanted that gig, damn it. Yeah, everyone, everyone that worked in history was like, "How did Simon get the key?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have quite—you spent quite a lot of your time in car parks. A lot of time in car parks. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not explore that anymore. But yeah. Yes. Uh, anyway, I mean, what I was going to say about that—the uh, the Richard the Third thing—because if I had been fronting it, I would have been so sceptical mm. about the possibility of them Hell finding yeah. it because archaeology doesn't dig history. Mm-hmm. You. Uh, uh, Mick Aston, the so right. wonderful Mick Aston, said a glorious thing to me once. He said, he said if you tried to dr- dig the Norman invasion, <laughs> you wouldn't find it in the ground. Absolutely. It's no different to uh, 75... Uh, uh, until you kind of hit a, a, the Norman castles, which only started in, what, 1080-something. Anyway, uh, th- there's nothing before, nothing after. The only tangible example of finding history that I know of is what they call the Boudican layer in Colchester mm. where, where Boudica burnt Colchester and you can go there and there's, there's a pub where you go into the basement and they've got glass uh, you know in, where, where the, the earth is and you go down and there's suddenly this tiny tiny little red layer that is clearly the Boudican layer. You but need to come for a walk around Gloucester my friend. We've got quite a lot of that round here I have to say. Moments of history caught in the earth. But yeah no, you, but, but you're but right. But by and large yeah. you don't do. No you don't and, and you certainly don't necessarily get individuals, characters from history being revealed in archaeology. It's hugely controversial. And the puzzle that the bloke that they find, they found, has a hunched back, when we know that that kind of language in order to describe Richard III was Shakespeare 
arse-licking the Tudors mm -hmm. because Richard III was a Plantagenet and therefore had to be bad and bad meant, uh, meant physically distorted. Yeah. And we know, and I've seen in the uh, Society of Antiquaries, there's a, there's a very ancient painting of... Uh, uh, of Richard III oh, yeah. with the humpback and it's clearly it's been, been pa painted it's in. been painted on it afterwards painted yeah let's in. make this personal <laughs> so then to dig someone who appears to have all the genes that are required in order to be Richard mm. III but has a hunchback I think is an enormous puzzle which is still not being it's resolved a complete, it's a complete anomaly and, and yeah. so exciting I think it's had ripples all the way down obviously we are missing time team Long may it rest in peace. But, I mean, it, 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 it is sad to not have that on our screens anymore, isn't it? My favourite time team digs were actually in Gloucestershire at Turkdean. Really? Yeah, we found, would you believe, we found two Roman villas in one field. Good God. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it wasn't a housing estate. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was probably the same family who just... You know, uh, you build a house, it's all nice and la-di-da, then it gets really old. Yeah. You don't knock it down, you live there while you build the one <laughs> next door. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but no, and that was... I, this. Oh, you would die for this. I mean, I, I did film... I could sacrifice the rest of my life to this moment now. No. Um, archaeologist says to me, we're digging this thing, we know there's a... We can see there's a villa there. He says, I am pretty sure that about three inches below where we are now, there is a... Uh, a mosaic Roman floor. Mm. Uh, and he passed me the trowel oh. and said, see if there is. And I said, no, 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 I can't do that. I'm not really an archaeologist. I'm not an archaeologist. I'm just some bloke off the telly. <laughs> uh, and, and I said, I'll spoil it. And he said, no. He said, think about it. The thing about a floor is, by definition, it's robust. That's true, yeah. You don't build a floor that is going to be easily damaged. Or if you do, it's bonkers. So he said, <laughs> so he said I'll be over your shoulder. And so I, I started to excavate. Oh. And like one mosaic tile, uh, tiny, tiny mosaic square came up. And then another, and then another, and then a black one. I've got a pattern, I've got a pattern. Oh and then God. after like about three or four minutes, a terracotta one. Yay! Yay! And gradually, I, more tiny. and more and more. And I, 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 this, the sort of ground floor bit here, not up where the poor people are up the back, but this... this <laughs> <laughs> Love you up there. Love you guys. Sorry. Well done, Good. Pony. They don't understand. They're just waving. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, but the, this bit, it was probably about half the size of this. And I, you know, I'd, I'd excavated most of it myself. Oh my God. And it was all perfect, <gasps> except for three great big, slightly curved gouges out of it from the deep ploughing they'd only started five years oh, ago. Oh, no. And it was, so, you know, if ever there was an object lesson into why, why education is so important, why an understanding of archaeology, Ugh. particularly for farmers, is so enormously important, that was it. But to be the first person to mm. have a tangible experience of that floor that was probably, what, over 1,600 years old. Mm. And the other great thing about it was that... Most of it was exquisite, and some of it was really gash. <laughs> it was like you lot would do if you're flop. <laughs> oh, he's really <laughs> turning on you now, people. <laughs> no, not the skilled artisans up the back. They, they would know how to make it. Uh, um, you know, they're, they're, they're like really big, clunky bits. Um, and, a big and brick. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what had happened was obviously there'd been some kind of water leakage over a period of time. And they patched it up. And it was, it was like this wonderful celebration of the fact that there were these exquisite teams of itinerant craftsmen working up and down the M4 in Roman times, uh, laying these floors. And then they'd be the local bloke that you'd got, got in or you would try and do it yourself and it was Fix just it up, yeah, yeah it was so human and that to me is what time team is at its best and I, I mean been. I know we're running out of time everybody and I want to leave some time for questions but isn't it that passion that is what makes you <laughs> just such a, a such an important ambassador for history for archaeology for the humanities you're just brilliant thank you can we all thank Tony for a really lovely evening come on stand up take your bow <laughs> Thank you. That was amazing.
really good fun. Well, if we're if we are going to give some applause, can we give some to my superb interlocutor tonight? Uh, absolutely inspired. The next generation of historians. Give her a big hand. <laughs> That's a lot. Wow. Big blush now. Big blush, big blush. Um, Yeah, amazing. Such fun. So exciting. Um, I'm sure there are questions people want to ask. So do we have a roving mic? We do. Um, Please put your hands up. We are friendly and nice people, so do not be afraid to ask us questions. Here. Do I dare say the cheap seats? (laughs) (laughs) I know Donna. <laughs> Look at Donna, festival organiser up here. They're all the same price. Do you really only do Time Team for three days? And if so, why? There was a kind of outraged Gloucester tone, wasn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't quite see you, but I'm sure your arms were folded. <laughs> <laughs> Um, (laughs) um, why well the short answer to that is we don't do time team at all now because Mm. all the ones that you see uh, are the old ones which are constantly being repeated after we've been doing it for 20 years uh, Channel 4 said they didn't want to invest in in time team any longer which was very sad did we do it in three days yes we really did (laughs) Why did we do it in three days? Well, there are a number of of reasons for that. There is, of course, just the the brutal economic reason that Time Team wasn't six people in front of the camera. Uh, We catered for between 46 and 50 people each day. Um, The camera people, the camera assistants, three different camera crews, uh, all the the experts that we brought in. There were many more uh, archaeologists on site than in the main that you saw because in order to dig relatively swiftly, you didn't ever want to compromise the archaeology. So you had to have a lot of skilled people. And that's, you know, that's that's 50 hotel rooms a night. So, and given that, particularly at the beginning, uh, Time Team was funded by the continuing education part of Channel 4 and like the education department in any organisation it's the worst funded part of the organisation we just simply couldn't afford any more than three days but there is a there was another uh, more more palatable reality which is that most archaeology which is conducted nowadays is rescue archaeology Mm -hmm. it's done because the Waitrose is going in um, it's done because a new motorway is going in or whatever. And, and um, this is a phrase I never thought I would ever use. Thanks to Michael Heseltine, <laughs> wow. uh, in the 1970s, um, he got this piece of secondary legislation through which said that if you're going to mm. dig anything major, then it's got to have archaeological scrutiny first. Mm. So all the time the archaeologists are in, the diggers are there going chugga chugga yeah, chugga, yeah. sort of waiting to leap back in. You do the investigation and then you leave it for future generations. And actually, when they lay down concrete, if you've if you've identified what the archaeology is first, that's actually great. It's protected from future generations. Because archaeology, it's a very young discipline. Mm. Pitt Rivers, um, who really almost single-handedly developed the whole notion of archaeology, he was only, what, in the 1870s. Um, And we don't really know how to do it very, very well. And and even when we do, new science is coming in all the time. Like, for instance, DNA. All those millions of bones that have been chucked away by archaeologists over the years. I know, yeah. Unaware of how valuable all that, uh, that evidence would be. So actually... It's very important to leave a load of it for future generations because yeah. we don't know what to do with it and we actually kill it. It's like draining a pond, you know, we're doing archaeology. You, you actually destroy the evidence as you go. So. Well, I don't know if you saw this particular archaeological discovery yesterday, Tony. Got it. As I was going out to give a talk called Swans and Shield Maidens about the non-existence of both, 
They'd gone back to the bones of a Swedish... Uh, in, in the Burka uh, Cemetery in Sweden, there's this amazing warrior burial. Like, every bit of kit you could want. Viking burial. Two dead horses, loads of bling, obviously a man. They've gone back, done DNA analysis. It's a woman. <laughs> Our first shield maiden has been discovered. But that's the thing, isn't it? It's an evolving discipline that constantly... And actually, you, maybe you don't have all the tools right now, no. but you can record it and come back and return. There's a great story about that, which I really think exemplifies it, which is when Howard Carter discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun, um, uh, he, he, did, he knew he didn't want to rely just on Lord Carnarvon for money. Uh, he, he wanted American money. Mm. It's a very familiar story. And what he did, he got his blokes, once he'd got all those chariots, he got them to polish them all up, to sweep the floor immaculately, and then got the guys in from time and life to, you know, shoot all yeah. these pictures. By doing that, of course, he <gasps> destroyed all of that biological evidence, all those little bits of cloth that would inevitably have been there yeah. so we would have known how things were woven. All those tiny little uh, beetles and spiders that would have told us about the weather and, you know, yeah. all that evidence, evidence that we even today don't know about, just went like that because he was after the loot. You can't blame him. He didn't know that he was doing anything wrong. It would have, must have seemed a good idea at the time. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting to keep up with the developments because then you can go back, reassess. It's, you know, it's valuable yeah. stuff. Another question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we are doing questions. Yeah, sorry. yeah. Right up at the back. Thank you. I see you. I see you. They're quite smart at the back, actually. They are. They're very nice. They're raised up. Hunger. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Uh, we, we get some um, subjects, some historical subjects that are done to death yeah. on, on, on TV. I, I was just, just wondering, both, both of you, uh, are there any periods that you're particularly interested in that you would like to see featured more? Is that you, Chris? It's me, Hi, Chris. Chris. Hi, Doc. <laughs> Hi, Mark. Hi, guys. Sorry, forgive that moment so, of, uh, uh, of recognition. Yeah, is there any particular subject that you're interested really? in? Really? Me? You, you really? Would... Genuinely? Mm, yeah. um, I, of course. I, 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 think that, um, I think the world of television and pr uh, book publishing and... Uh, so much of our focus on history, even down to the sort of educational level of what do you study at, at a curricular level, uh, it, it's incredibly streamlined and focused, I think, on personalities and individuals. Often, personalities and individuals who we will never fully, completely understand. Um, and actually, I, I think that there is so much more to be, to be learnt from putting historical individuals and historical time periods on a cultural platform where they exist alongside all the things that are happening around them, the politics, the economics, the natural disasters, the, um, the arts, the literature, the things that they're making, the music they're listening to. That's this sort of cultural history that I'm really interested in. And it, and it keeps getting streamlined. And I think we all... <laughs> there is a real propensity to keep going back to the big old topics of Henry VIII and his six wives and the world wars, which are, of course, hugely important topics, but they do come to dominate a lot of, of what we see in terms of our historical, uh, con con the way we consume history. And I, I would just a tiny addendum to that one, and also what was happening in other countries at the time. Oh, my God, the whole, world history. The whole Holy, Holy Roman Empire has just gone by unnoticed by, by Great Britain. <laughs> but I think my, when I'm asked that by, by kids... I've got two answers to it. My first one is when they say, which, time, which period of history would you like to, to live in? My answer is now. Absolutely, mine too. Yeah, because it's unlikely that uh, I will be beaten up by the army or police during the course of the night. It's unlikely that I will get some terrible disease mm -hmm. which nobody can cure. It's very likely there will be breakfast on the table tomorrow morning. It's very likely that the central heating will work. None of those things most people in history have, uh, have, have had. But um, indulgently, if I, I suppose if I were able to be thrown back into history, I would like to go back to those few three or four years when King Alfred apparently oh. single-handedly 
If I didn't love you enough already, you just said the right thing. It's just quite weird. I mean, we know, objectively we know, that what we think of as England had been reduced to about 25 square miles around Athelney. And then suddenly, within three years, the Viking leader is walking around southern England dressed in white with his hands ceremonially tied, saying, I've found you, Jesus. Thank you, King Alfred. And, and our nation is born. And given that he wasn't even supposed to be king, he was the, a very younger... The fourth. The fourth, and he'd just gone off to train in Rome, hadn't he? And yeah. uh, presumably had been, been dragged back. Mm. Um, you know, wouldn't it be lovely to know who were all the people around him? Because obviously it was succeed? a kind of machine yeah. That, yeah. that had to be created very quickly to do all the things, to, 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 to get the notion of currency. What a huge leap forward that is. And all the other things. That, but the uh, infrastructure, the fact he built our, built our burrs, you know, Alfred was it's huge. And next year, of course, we'll be celebrating Athelflaed and, and that legacy that comes through with Alfred and his... his he, he did so much. Celebrating like, Athelflaed, nobody's heard of him apart from... <laughs> Three people. <laughs> it's true. You can. You made you in, in, in the luxury of Gloucester. I know. Made, in the luxury yeah, of Gloucester, we revel in yeah. her. But yeah, no, no. But it's awful, isn't it? But people yeah. don't hear about these characters. But also, they don't hear about periods that are. Um, yeah, they're just not fashionable or they're not sexy enough. No. And, and we're both big lovers of the old Anglo-Saxons, aren't we? We like the Anglo-Saxon period. Um, but yeah, thank We you. think of the Norman invasion as a rather sort of irritable yeah. blip just, in the full march wrong. of the Anglo-Saxons. It all went a little bit wrong. <laughs> Do we have time for one more question? Yay! Go on, bring on another question. Somebody be brave. Go, there's a hand. Hello. Thank you. This is probably not what you, you expect, but first of all, thank you for coming, really. You, you have been a part of my TV life for many, many decades. Time Team is just unbelievable, it really is. Even now, you watch them two or three times, and it's incredible. Now, you, you have mentioned that your acting career and Blackadder has been a big part of your life. Um, it's taught me a lot about history, reminded me, as you say. But um, could I just ask for all of us here, would you just tell us once more, that you have a cunning plan. Oh, oh I can die happy. As we're nearly there, I'll do two things. I, I, will, I, will, I will end by, with those famous words. But um, a question that I'm often asked, which I think makes, makes a nice ending, is... Um, the very last scene of the very last episode of Black oh Adam, where God. we all go over the top. How, how did it came to be? Mm. Well, the, the answer to that is that we wanted to make, as it were, a public statement that we were not taking the mickey out of those who died, but of the madness that led to them dying. Mm. And so we were absolutely clear that at the end of the last episode... We all had to die. Mm. And you, you may remember that really there's, there's not a gag in the last two or three minutes. Mm. Um, we just, we're just making this statement. And we used to do Blackadder Goes Forth in the big studio in Television Centre, the one where Top of the Pops was mm. put on. Um, we would have an audience about, about, about the size of the, the, the raised part of the audience up there. Um, and enough space for the cameras and then three different sets one for the trenches one for Melchett's office and the third for whatever the narrative line was this week um, and you had to finish at 10 o'clock if you didn't then the um, electricians would pull the switch and, and, and you'd lose the show oh my god so um, we knew we had to get finished at 10 at 10 to 10 we had just about finished doing it all except no man's land but in order to shoot the no man's land where we were going to die, we needed a second studio. There just wasn't room for it in the big one. So we all raced down no. the curved basement at Television Centre till we came to Studio 3. And we went in there uh, to do the final, what, 45 seconds. Uh, and when we got there, the, the set constructors had been un under exactly the same time constraints as we were. So the set wasn't finished. There was black paint 
which was still wet. Oh. It hadn't completely covered the polystyrene out of which the set was made. Um, and uh, But by the time we were ready to start, there were only two minutes left, so we were only going to have one crack at this. And so we'd already shot the stuff where we were in, where we were in the trenches. So if you could imagine, the set was no man's land, and you, you would see us coming up the steps and into no, no man's land. So the director said, action. And we came up the last two steps and began to move forward. I said, I said we all began to move forward. Actually, I didn't because my webbing had got caught oh, on, no! on, on the top of the ladder. And I, I wasn't moving. I was like roadrunner, just <laughs> doing this and not moving forward. So if you ever watch that last scene again, you'll see I, I'm lagging about three <laughs> steps behind. But... Um, after we'd run a little bit, uh, the director went bang, bang, bang because the sound was going to be dubbed Good, on afterwards. Yeah. Um, and then we all fell to the ground. But because the set was made of polystyrene, we all bounced. Oh! Uh, and then that, that was all we'd got time for. That oh, was it. So we went away thinking, thinking that we had completely messed up the final scene. And it was only in post-production that the director and the producer and the editor got together in order to transform that final scene. And um, if you think about what they did, um, first of all, they turned the colour off mm. so that that obscures mm. uh, or the, uh, quite how bad the set was. Then they put it into slow-mo, so it feels really old, and put the flicker on the... Um, uh, once again, it, it, it prevents you really seeing what's there. Then the howitzers go off. Yes. Look at it again, and you'll see that what that does, it blinds the retina. They're so bright that you really get... It's a very... Um, you, you can't really see what's happening. You're, you're driven by the, your emotions. And then they commissioned a single trumpet version of... Very, very simple. But it's a requiem, isn't it? It's the last post. And, and then finally what they do is as we fall to the ground just before we hit the ground... They freeze. Mm. So you never see us landing. And bouncing. And bouncing. <laughs> and then slowly they bring the colour in and mix to the fields of Flanders and all mm. that green. Mm. So your eye is confronted by the green. So when the red of the poppies comes up, it's very, very fresh in your eye, more so than it would have been if you'd been seeing a lot of colour. Mm. And then you've got the field of Flanders and all those poppies. There are no final credits. Mm. It just goes, real comic rhythm. It goes, beat, 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 the oh. end. And of such great cock-ups, great art is made. <laughs> oh. Wow, that was amazing. You've made That's me emotional. <laughs> you made me go all teary listening. I promised you I'd say that. And finally, before I go off to sign my books, I don't feel that either of us have plugged our books sufficiently. <laughs> our books are on sale. Please buy, we will sign. <laughs> we will say we might even put amusing and interesting things. Well, into I don't the... know. How amusing and interesting are we still feel. <laughs> but he's got one so, last thing in store oh, for you, I think. Like last night, I was uh, at a do I was at, I went at the signing afterwards. I said, uh, what, what, what should I put? He said, oh, just for Ron. So I wrote, just for... Oh, no, <laughs> Anyway, my final words are... I have a cunning plan. <laughs> <laughs> Good night. <laughs> Good night, my Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Tony.